Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Eric Wargo, author of Time Loops and the recently released Precognitive Dreamwork in the Long Self. Eric discusses his theory of precognitive dreaming, which he argues is a kind of memory of the future. He shares his thoughts on why science rejects well-evidenced phenomena like precognition as pseudoscience and the need for citizen scientists. He talks about the often mundane nature of precognitive dreams, Freud and Jung, and what he believes to be the true nature of synchronicity. Eric Wargo has a PhD in anthropology from Emory University and works as a science writer and editor in Washington, D.C. In his spare time, he writes about science fiction, consciousness, and the paranormal at his popular blog, The Nightshirt. He is the author of Time Loops and Precognitive Dreamwork in the Long Self. Eric Wargo, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for having me. I always appreciate speaking with another dreamer. Um, I think that we're kind of few and far between these days. Uh, so I always yeah. welcome that. Uh, and, you know, I found your book, uh, Precognitive Dream Work in the Long Self, to be um, a bit of a mind blower in all the best ways. Um, uh, in fact, I'm still sort of ruminating over it. Some of it was a little bit challenging for me uh, because I've always been more aligned to the thinking of Jung rather than Freud. And uh, you seem to favor Freud. Uh, and I hope we can get into that a bit. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm always open to having my ideas challenged. Um, and I've had precognitive dreams. So I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you today. There's a lot I want to talk to you about, but I think the first question I'll ask is where does your interest in precognitive dreams and the paranormal come from? Yeah, well, that's a big, that's a big question. The interest in the paranormal really I don't know. I, I think as I as I look back on it, it's sort of been growing for a couple decades. Um, uh, but it really uh, went to a new level when I had a couple of UFO sightings in mm. 2009, mm. and they weren't high strangeness, you know, experiences. I wasn't abducted. I they were just lights in the sky, but they were, uh, you know, very unusual and. Uh, prompted me to start reading into the subject and as I read into the subject I realized that it it had tendrils to um, a lot much larger domain of human experience uh, namely psychic phenomena and while I had been a you know I had been raised pretty much a materialist scientist and so on my parents were scientists and I'd uh, I didn't have any problems with UFOs, but I definitely had problems with the idea of ESP. You know, that was not something that fit into my world picture at that point. And, uh, but I did my due diligence and started reading uh, about the subject and discovered, hey, there's something here. And this is really interesting that, that mainstream scientists just, science just doesn't want to hear about. And, uh, and then in 
2011, uh, Daryl Bem, who is an eminent Cornell University psychologist, uh, very big name psychologist, uh, came out with a paper in a major journal. And I, I, at that point, was working as the editorial director of another psychological science organization. So that's how I came across his paper. Uh, and it was reporting the results of uh, some studies in what is called presentiment. Um, that is, he was reversing the, the temporal sequence of some basic psychological paradigms, things like priming, facilitation of recall, uh, a few other things, and uh, got these significant results that students, undergraduates in his studies, would pre-spawned to stimuli um, uh, and behaviorally, you know, make choices on a computer screen or, or whatever that seemed to be influenced by things that they were going to be encountering uh, subsequent to their response. Uh, and it was really mind-blowing, very mind-blowing paper. It's called Feeling the Future. And he'd been doing this sort of research for a long time uh, alongside his other research. And this kind of result, you know, gets published all the time in little tiny parapsychology journals and so on. But this was, you know, he got it through peer review in a major journal. And it just made, it made people flip out. Mm -hmm. um, psychologists were so angry about this. And I saw the anger in my colleagues, uh, you know, who were considering writing a letter to the journal and saying this, this is preposterous and should never be published. Um, you know, the idea being that, well, if the public starts seeing psychology as being about ESP, it'll, you know, ruin the reputation of the field. And wow, I was really, I really got, uh, it was eye, an eye opener. And um, I think I have a, I have a kind of, you know, underdog radar that, that, you know, starts flashing when I see what looks like kind of systematic bullying of mm. uh, an unpopular or uh, strange, unfamiliar idea. And that's what, that's really what it looked like to me. And boy, that told me, hey, there is something here. You know, if only in, you know, why does it push these buttons? And so I, uh, that really sent me down the path of studying ESP research. At that point, I was, you know, doing a lot of, you know, research and practice in remote viewing and, uh, and stuff. But the precognition side of it, there's, you know, ESP is generally divided into three modalities. Uh, there's telepathy, clairvoyance or remote viewing, and precognition. And precognition is kind of the most outrageous of those three somehow to people. Uh, and it's been, it kind of didn't get studied extensively until later than these other modalities, but actually the data in support of it are very, very strong. And, uh, and there's even a, an argument to be made. Um, and I engage in these debates with, 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 with remote viewers that, that other forms of ESP supposedly are really precognition in disguise. And I, I, I talk a little bit in the book, in my books about why that's an interesting way of looking at the problem. There's no proof at this point, you know, one way or the other, but in any event, I, I, I really started doing extensive reading and study of, 
parapsychology at that point. And, uh, and of course, I was investigating it in my own life. Uh, and having being a dreamer and having studied my own dreams for decades at that point, I mean, I kept a daily dream journal. I, you know, had been steeped in Freud and Lacan and stuff in graduate school. And then I'd got into Jung about 20 years ago. And so I'd, you know, I was really familiar with dream, you know, mainstream psychoanalytic and new age dream interpretation, you know, methods. And uh, it had never, and the topic of precognitive dreaming had never come up in those literatures. But I realized, well, wait, I've had these two and I kind of swept them under the rug, you know, as one does, you know, you have a weird experience, paranormal experience of whatever kind, the tendency is to just, well, that was strange and maybe it felt life altering even at the moment, but then kind of doubt creeps in and in hindsight, well, maybe I was imagining or whatever. Uh, you know, I had a precognitive dream on the morning of 9-11, which I talk about in my book um, and a few others. And so I started really studying my dreams with this possibility in mind. And boom, I mean, it was, it was like turning on a light switch. You know, the moment you start paying attention to this possibility uh, of dreams foreshadowing future experiences in your life, often imminent experiences in your life, often within minutes of waking, you know, uh, often over the next day or two, um, but sometimes over the span of weeks, months, years, decades even. And if you have a, a detailed dream journal, you can start to examine that possibility. Um, that was, it was, a, it was really a, a very paradigm altering um, thing for me. Uh, and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, you have these experiences and they go, God, this is mind blowing. You know, I had a dream about, you know, this scene in a movie that I watched the next day, you know, and it's like, it's impossible. It, it you know, it defies everything we know about time and, and, and consciousness and everything else. And yet dream, you know, doubt creeps in. You have to sort of have these experiences again and again and again. And it, 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 it's that re repetition of realizing that wow the 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 mind the mind brain whatever you want to call it uh is works in a very different way than than any of our assumptions um and uh and time and it and it upholds uh actually a very classical uh idea about time uh that that goes back to einstein really, and that's actually not really questioned by most uh, or by, by many physicists, um, yet we kind of just ignore it because it doesn't fit with our experience. But that's the, the idea that we live in a four-dimensional space-time continuum. It's what Einstein's discoveries led to, uh, and his, his math teacher, Hermann Minkowski, called it a block universe. And this block universe model you know, says that, you know, imagine imagine space-time as a, a four-dimensional block. We can't imagine those four dimensions, but just imagine there's two dimensions of space and one dimension of time and that, and that, and that we are world lines. Objects and particles and people are all lines uh, snaking through that block for a certain length you know, of that block. And that 
the present moment is a cross section of that four dimensional reality. So we're really, you know, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I see a, a body here and, and so forth. I see you sitting there, but we're both really space time worms, you know, snaking through uh, the four dimensional block. Uh, and that's the reality that that precognition totally supports. Um, and uh, so there's on the one hand, there's this validation from kind of the most theoretical, you know, relativistic cosmology and and lived experience of of many, many people. Um, uh, when I published my first book, Time Loops, which was sort of more theoretical about the how precognition might work. Um, I went into dreams a bit uh, because that's sort of the classical way that people tend to experience it. But I also talked a lot about how it worked, you know, manifest in art and creativity and so forth. Um, but after I wrote that, I got bombarded by people telling me their precognitive dream stories and wanting insight about them because these things can be very troubling mm -hmm. for people. You know, you might have people I, again and again and again, I get emails from people who had premonitions of, of a loved one's death or a disaster in the news. And, and these things unfold because they had a dream about it beforehand and then they feel guilty or they feel just a lot of troubled emotions you know did somehow did, did i cause it did i am i responsible could i have done something could i have warned the person all these thoughts uh, go through people's heads and i i think i even say in the in the new book that i think this kind of guilt and disturbance that people feel around premonitions specifically uh is a is a major mental health consequence of this thus far unacknowledged capacity or and I'd say constant feature of our of our uh, of our psychology um, so you know it, it, this is consequential this is not just you know uh, it's it's not about you know it's not just about developing some new superpower and and not just uh, a novelty I mean it really has consequence in people's lives and if they don't understand it or if they have confused understandings about it, uh, maybe based on folklore or based on their own cultural belief systems or things they've read in uh, cheap ESP books <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of expensive ESP books, right. you know, um, that it can have real consequences. So I realized, okay, someone needs to write a, a, a real guidebook here. And I've, and I had, you know, over the years amassed kind of a lot of experience in interpreting dreams and and looking for precognitive precognition in dreams and uh figuring out the tricks of of the, the brain that 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 sort of keep it hidden um uh and so so yeah that was the impetus for for the new book I and mean, this is a long answer to your initial question but that's, that's my path yeah. <laughs> yeah uh no there's a lot to kind of uh, unpack in that um so the, the first question I wanted to ask is you mentioned the, uh, the article by Daryl Bem and that it was met with anger uh, from the psychological community. Where do you think that anger was coming from? That's a great question. There are 
first of all, it, it's such a dogma in psychology that, and, and I think any professional working in the field, wh whether, you know, however closed-minded or open-minded they personally are, there's, you know, they, they have been indoctrinated really. I mean, every, every professional, no matter what the field is indoctrinated, you know, we're all indoctrinated. So I'm not right. singling out psychology, but right. uh, you know, in their psych 101 textbooks, you know, there's a section on pseudoscience. Okay. And right there in those chapters on pseudoscience is the, you know, the, the embarrassing history of parapsychology uh, and uh, which is not really embarrassing. It's, 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 you know, a very, it's had very, very legitimate, respectable researchers and has amassed in effect quite uh, a lot of good, uh, good and compelling science. But there's also, it's, you know, the shady and, and not quite uh, up to snuff practitioners. And those are the ones that get singled out. Um, and uh, so there's this reputation of pseudoscience that attaches to it. And boy, the last, you know, that is, any, any taint of pseudoscience is really a legitimate scientist wants to avoid that as much as possible. And psychology is, is particularly sensitive to that because of its history. Psychology has always had to defend itself as a hard science against charges and claims by other kinds of scientists that, well, what you're doing isn't really science. You know, that's, uh, that's always been the, the kind of there in the background of psychology, and that's driven psychology to uh, to be very um, careful of its reputation uh, and to develop, you know, advanced methods that 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 seemingly uh, increase the rigor and reproducibility of its results and so on. In fact, you know, the reality is it's it's uh, it's got problems. It's got real problems. And 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 one of the ironies, one of the really interesting ironies of Daryl Bem's paper was that it provoked uh, a real soul soul searching in the field because psychologists thought, well, if this pseudoscience is getting published uh, and this past peer review and it's and his statistical me methods look okay. Well, then clearly there's something wrong, and we need to investigate why why this this kind of thing is making making it through the publication process. Uh, and as we know from you know the last ten years, the, the big story across all the sciences, and especially in psychology, has been the replication crisis. I mean, studies after studies fail to replicate, um, and you know they get pushed out on TED talks and, and people make their careers on some little slightly counterintuitive, but not too counterintuitive finding that, you know, sounds great. And then it fails to, to replicate in further studies. But, but by the time those failed replications <laughs> occur, everyone has moved on and they just assume that what they read in that one interesting study is true. Um, and so this is a, a, a super big problem, not and it, it goes across a lot of sciences. It's true in the health sciences and so on as well. But so it, it you know, this, uh, Daryl Bem's paper catalyzed 
this intensified look at, at psychology and there was a, a team then formed to you know, re, redo all the experiments in like a year's worth of some of the top journals and, and see how many could replicate. And they found some appalling figure that, you know, less than half, I think, replicated. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it provoked a lot of discussion. The irony is that Daryl Bem's studies have replicated very well. There was an initial, there were initial claims, the skeptics all came out of the woodwork saying, yes, this can't be replicated. And yeah, we tried this and this, it, you know, that we've got no results and, you know, this is BS. Uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, something like, I think there was 87 independent replications of some of his studies uh, that got the same results he got. And, and uh, the you know, statistical likelihood of that being a fluke is, you know, vanishingly small. Um, so, you know, his work is sound. And, uh, and a, a, there's a lot of very statistically sound um, uh, research showing the same thing or showing variants of the same thing. The idea that we get information for our future somehow. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, one, of the, one of the former heads of the statistic, you know, American Statistical Association or whatever um, is, is one of the allies of parapsychology and and she again and again will will tell you that this it is you know the statistics show <laughs> that that this is real and and no one wants to hear it no one in in psychology wants to hear it no one in other fields wants to hear it but it, they they're going to have to listen eventually because it's yeah. real yeah yeah i i can relate you know one of the classes that i teach on a regular basis is logic and one of the things I'm supposed to discuss is pseudoscience. And in every logic book, essentially all it does is say, says, yeah, this isn't real. And I can't in good conscience stand in front of a class of students and just indoctrinate them that way. When I know that there's evidence in support of some of these things, you know, you mentioned Daryl Beam. I know that Dean Radin uh, has done some really good work and some others. And it's in me, from, from my point of view, I think it's fascinating in some aspects in the sense that, and this is where I really appreciate your work um, because I think it's vital to like philosophy and religious studies to look at these things and take them seriously. Um, I understand you're friends with uh, Jeffrey Kripal, and that's why I really appreciate his work because he's taking these things seriously. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I often think in terms of you know, um, science, you know, in the sort of the history of science, you know, there's Thomas Kuhn and the, you know, the revolutions of, you know, scientific paradigms mm -hmm. and what drives the shift into a new paradigm are anomalies. Mm -hmm. And I see personally, I think consciousness is the anomaly that's going to shift us into the next paradigm. And we're not, that's not going to happen if people just have blinders on and say, yeah, this isn't happening. Right. You know. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, but just along these lines, I think you've already answered this, but what do you say to these skeptics who just automatically reject it? I mean, you just kind of point out that, yeah, they've done these studies. Is there any way to 
convince them? No, <laughs> no, there's not. And, I, and honestly, you know, you, you can ask me that question. That's an interesting question, but I've never had to, I've never had mm. to confront it. I've never, no one, no skeptic has ever confronted me mm. about this directly. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm not sure what I, I would say. I'd probably get all tongue tied because like, you know, it's like there's what, you know, I, I've, I've done 10 years of research on this, mm. read my books, you, right, you know, right. read my books, get back to me after you've actually read what I say in my books and, and considered, you know, the massive evidence, um, both from scientific research, although for me, honestly, the science only goes so far in, in, in helping both prove and understand what's, what's going on. We really need to draw honestly on human experience and subjective experience. And yeah, for scientists, that's anecdotal, right. but when the anecdotes pile up like a mountain and not only are they you know so overwhelming in number but they're consistent they're consistent mm -hmm. in very particular ways and that's what that's what really kind of drives my research is that mm -hmm. is that is finding those consistencies in these mountains of anecdote uh that that point to something real you know i i i often you know, there's different kinds of science. I think when we think of science, we think now of some person in a laboratory doing a, doing something that can be repeated, you know, very, very carefully and ex experimental science. But, you know, there's also, you know, what, what do we call exploration? You know, that's not, it's not quite science, but, you know, you can go to the, you know, be an explorer in the 19th century and go into the Congo and see gorillas and come back and describe gorillas and people aren't going to believe you or some some all believe you and some won't you know ultimately you just have to bring some gorillas out you know and show them you know show them enough pictures you know show them you know let them experience a gorilla themselves they will you know that will change the conversation now is that science it's it's something on the border and i think that's kind of what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to not only show people the, uh, you know, a lot of reports, I'm giving them the tools to experience it themselves. And that's what the new book is about, is about turning people into citizen scientists uh, to look, the only way you're going to be, if you're not convinced by this, just try it yourself, you know, and see if you aren't convinced. And um, I've had some great testimonials, honestly, from, from, uh, and I kind of expected this, but I, I didn't make any promises in the book, but I, you know, testimonials from readers saying, you know, the first night I tried this, I then I had a precognitive dream, yeah. you know, in some cases about something they were about to read in my book the next day. So it's like, oh. there's this fractal <laughs> geometry yeah. going and it's like, yep, that's the way it, that's the way this, this stuff mm -hmm. works. Yeah. And uh, you start having those experiences, you know, my, my hope is that I'll be part of, you know, I think there are a lot of writers right now, a lot of people right now, including Jeffrey Kuypel, who you mentioned, and others who are really trying to change the conversation about, about paranormal phenomena in general and open people's minds. And I think there's a kind of younger generation of scholars, too, um, uh, who are a bit more open-minded and a little more skeptical of the skeptics. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that, that 
we'll get to a point soon where, you know, some kind of young researcher will have their own precognitive dream experiences and realize, you know, hey, I could, I could make a name for myself by doing some studies and maybe getting some funding to study this, you know, maybe in some sort of safe, you know, maybe call it something different. You know, the, uh, my expectation is that this, you know, everything I'm saying, or most of the things <laughs> I'm saying in my books will be validated by science sooner or later, but it's all going to have a different name. It's yeah. all going to be different, given different mm -hmm. names. And none of us, you know, liminal people out here in, <laughs> in parapsychology mm -hmm. land and, and, you know, saying the paranormal are, are ever going to get any credit <laughs> for it. Uh, but, <laughs> but all these, these phenomena will be validated and, and given sort of scientific imprimatur uh, uh, eventually under, you know, a new lexicon, a new vocabulary, um, which is fine. The, the, the point, you know, the point is, I think, I think that paradigm shift you're talking about, you know, will happen but it's not going to happen from the top down in the sense of experimental science you know someone finally you know publishing one more study there's a million studies supporting this what happens to happen is people have to experience it in their own lives they have to see the gorilla you know um yeah. let's talk a little bit about these uh, or a lot about these precognitive dreams i you know i mentioned that i've had precognitive dreams and they have seemed to me to be a little bit different um, in a way from what you describe in the book. But I also had one right after reading your book. So I'll share that one with you. <laughs> okay. um, so for me, I've noticed that the precognitive dreams, because I've been keeping a record of my dreams as well for a good 30 years now. And uh, I, they always seem to happen during very emotional moments. Mm -hmm or something that there's a great concern. So, but for me, often it's like a voice. Uh, so um, when I was in Denver, I had um, been laid off uh, from the, the University of Denver and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I had this dream and all I remember from the dream was this voice saying, your life will be very different a year from now. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was accurate. Yeah. Um, I also noticed that, uh, you know, right now I'm an adjunct, unfortunately, and you know, the job security is always iffy. You never know if you're going to get enough classes to pay the bills. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will have dreams about that. I yeah. will have dreams that, um, uh, uh, you know, that I get classes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think those can fit into the model that sure. you provide. Um, but I also, and this is the experience I just had was I had a dream just the other night. And I remember just this brief scene of a friend of mine, Charlie, uh, appeared in the dream and he was kind of upset in the dream. And then yesterday I, you know, I had the dream the other night. And so yesterday I log into Facebook and you know how Facebook says, oh, you have a memory to share or something. And it was like, oh, you and Charlie have this memory. Uh, and I thought, <laughs> yeah. is that it? Mm -hmm. Is that it? Because that just seems so mundane to me. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that how this works? Is there, you know, like a mundane aspect and then a, I don't know, like a special, you know. Numinous is the word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the bulk, the what precognitive dream work teaches you 
is that the vast majority of precognitive dreams are very mundane. They're about these, these mundane things that you'll encounter on the internet the next day. I mean, for me, uh, yeah, Twitter. I mean, I'm just, you know, that's how I engage with, with uh, the internet and social media is, and, and many of my precognitive dreams are about a picture for instance, on Twitter, or I'll, you know, some link on Twitter will lead me to some article that I'll read and like come to a paragraph in the article, like, boom, that's like, I, I was dreaming this paragraph. Um, and that's very, yes, it's very, very common. It's, I believe, or at least my hypothesis at this point, is that that's partly a function of the fact that we are dreaming about our whole life mm. we're dreaming about all the upheavals even minor emotional upheavals in our day i mean like coming to like a really interesting article on something that you know like well, that's a slight upheaval in my day you know it's like my life is really boring for the most part and then you know the the little the mountain peaks you know are really not peaks but they're little little hills but those hills are what you're dreaming about you know the the kind of memorable things slightly memorable things um and uh, that, and we're pre-metabolizing all of those experiences. But what we remember of our dreams is a teeny tiny sliver, a fraction of that, okay? So inevitably, if, you know, we say you have, I'm just picking numbers at random. Say you have 20 dreams at night um, or dream about 20 experiences at night. You're, you know, you might remember one, one of those dreams. Now, and you might, you know, over the course of a week, discover a link between one of those dreams and one subsequent experience in your life. Well, the odds are that it's going to be a dream about something relatively trivial, even though you're, pro you're dreaming also about the more significant things, um, too. So dream work, to, you know, those dreams that rise to the top for people who aren't really doing precognitive dream work are the, the premonitions, you know, like, you know, having a dream about 9-11 and then 9-11 happens. Well, it's like, wow, it's pretty easy to remember that I had a dream uh, kind of related to this as I'm watching it on CNN. Uh, nobody who isn't paying attention to dreams is gonna remember that, um, that Facebook notification that you have a memory, you know, with, you know, your friend, you know, no one's gonna make that link unless they are recording their dreams and then doing the key bit of precognitive dream work, which is going back to your recent dream records every night and reminding yourself what you were dreaming about and how it, and looking for those connections. Because that's what very few people who keep a dream journal think to do, because they're not primed to think in terms of precognition. You know, we're, you know, you, if you grew up with a, you know, a Freudian background or a Jungian background, you're all, you're primed to look to the past. You're, you know, you assume that your dreams are somehow about your memories, about your past life, um, about longstanding things in your past leading up to now, you know, you are not primed to be looking for connections to things that happen subsequent to the dream. And so um, it just, it, it just requires that shift of mindset, but but this phenomenon that you're noticing of so many dreams being, you know, about trivial events is, uh, is, is, a, is a real one. But, but really, when you start having these dreams, even about trivial events, it's mind-blowing. I mean, you, you, yeah. when you think about 
well, how the, you know, because those trivial events are, are very specific. They're not, mm. you know, you know, dreaming about, you know, having, <laughs> dreaming about having lunch, you know, <laughs> you know, like with, you know, yeah, of course you had lunch the next day. Well, whatever they're, you know, dream, dreams about very specific, impossible to predict, you know, details about something that happened during that lunch, you know, something that somebody said, you know, that, that, that just couldn't be, you know, couldn't be predicted. And that's what dreams are, are, are connecting you to. And uh, it's, it's just a, a truly mind blowing experience to start having this uh, happen to you and, and realize then that you can, you can replicate it and keep doing it. Just, just, just keep looking, you know, it's just, just observe. It's mainly an, an observational kind of practice. Yeah. And I meant no offense to uh, Charlie uh, with uh, <laughs> referring to it as being mundane, but, and I should have added that, but your points were all taken is even in these sort of mundane experiences, it's amazing <laughs> that, yeah. you know, you can have this like precognitive glimpse. Right. right. Um, and so I don't uh, in any way want to uh, downplay that. Uh, now you mentioned memory and I know that memory is a major part of the book and isn't part of your argument that our memory extends into the future, that that's kind of what we're doing. We're sort of remembering the future. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly how it works. And, uh, and a lot of, you know, we, we mentioned those patterns that, that you start to see when the, the anecdotes accumulate. One of the patterns is that dreams are about our future experiences mm. and this and that's that's not intuitive if you you know have the sort of a basic folkloric uh preconceptions about what esp might be that you're somehow you know sensing ripples from the you know planes hitting the pentagon and or planes hitting the towers or whatever and and that causes a dream somehow in your head that's not that's not how it seems to work uh, a kick again and again and again and again dreams show us our future experience our future learning experiences um so a dream you know you do, you know my dream about 9-11 was not a, a, a direct effect of that event happening um in new york it was an effect of of my own experiences watching cnn the next day and my own thoughts and feelings about it um so that's important because uh memory is the same you know we don't i don't remember um what's an example i don't remember you know watergate you know i don't remember the watergate break-in you know i didn't you know but i i remember lots of things i've read in my life about the watergate break-in and that's where my memories come from you know um same with precognition you know uh, we people do not dream about events they dream about their own learning experiences and a great example of this is uh a houston woman named uh, elizabeth crone who is a, she regularly dreams about plane crashes and other disasters. Um, and she, and this, her story is very interesting and it's told in a book that she co-wrote with Jeff Kripal. Um, but she, you know, she was struck by lightning in the parking lot of her synagogue back in 1988 and subsequently started having precognitive dreams regularly. And her dreams, you know, are often about disasters plane crashes, things like that. But what she's dreaming specifically is the 
she's dreaming specifically the point of view uh, of the picture, you know, that she sees um, on the internet or on the news the next day. Uh, you know, for instance, she dreamed uh, about a, an American airliner uh, landing on the water in New York mm. and somehow saw the passengers standing on the wings, you know, impossible image. Well, six hours later, what goes viral on the internet and on the news, but the miracle on the Hudson uh, when Chesley Sullenberger piloted his plane to a safe landing and all the passengers were standing on the, the, all these, these photographs went viral right afterwards of, of, of passengers standing on the wings of the plane waiting to be picked up by boats. Um, uh, so, you know, she's not dreaming the event. She's dreaming her own engagement with the news about the event, which is a crucial distinction. And it points, it's one of the things that points to this being an aspect of memory. Another, other aspects are that, you know, it works the same way as memory. It, it, it keys in on, on emotional things that make an impact on us. You know, we don't remember every random thing we do in the day. We, we remember those things that stand out, you know, those little hills, you know, mm -hmm. or mountain peaks sometimes in our day. Um, those are the things we, we remember. And those are the things we pre-member in our dreams. Uh, those uh, we, uh, yeah, th th those are the, those are the, the, the biggies. Uh, but it, memory has certain characteristic features and precognitive dreams seem to obey that uh, perfectly. They also obey, as I, as I talk about in the book, they, uh, precognitive dreams seem to operate on art of memory principles. And this is actually an idea that, that psychologists have started to come around to. Um, so if you're familiar with the art of memory, it's sort of the ancient, what people did in the in pre-Gutenberg times to remember books and remember um, lengthy ar arguments, for instance, in a courtroom or whatever, you know, you create a, a sort of an absurd image related to every element in your argument or every element in the, in the poem or whatever. And then you place it, place those images sequentially in a, in a mental imaginary space. Uh, so like a, a memory palace or something like right, that. Yeah. And then you, and then when you t it comes time to deliver that or to recall what you had memorized, you simply mentally walk through that space and recover those, those images and reconstitute it that way. Well, dreams seem to be the same thing. They're, they're operating on those same uh, principles. And when you unpack a dream, that has a clear connection, that has a connection to a subsequent event. It's like, mm. yes, that's how it operates. Because, because often we, you know, most precognitive dreams are not these literal, like video quality representations of some subsequent experience. Now those do happen, but the majority of them are symbolic mm -hmm. to a degree. So what you're dreaming is not that video quality, you know, like you had a camcorder, you're dreaming a bunch of symbols that are assembled in kind of a weird narrative uh, that unfolds in a spatial setting, like a dream. Um, and, but all you do is free associate, free associating on those mm. elements. Um, and this will, this connects to my love of Freud because this was his great discovery about dream interpretation. You know, all you have to do is just, just on each of those elements, think what's the first thing this reminds me of. And it's like, um, often it's just automatic. Well, yeah, that's, you know, randomly, it reminds me of this, this other thing over here. It's those, 
uh, it's those associations that are the target of the dream, not mm. the, the symbol, the right. obvious symbol of the dream. So if you're just taking a dream literally, you're going to miss the vast majority. And this is another reason mm. why we miss so many of our precognitive dreams, because most people don't have that mentality that they need to interpret, that they need to right. code uh, or free associate on their dreams. They just sort of take the images literally um, uh, and fail to, to do that second operation, because really it's that missing often the, the target of the dream is missing. It's like, it's not represented. It's kind of the donut hole, you know, uh, but doing that free association very quickly assembles a picture. And that's, uh, and that's, will that will create your connection to a subsequent event very often. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about that because part of the dream work is it's not necessarily interpretation, which I think a lot of people get hung up on. And that's what I right. do. I'm like, what does this mean? But right. it's this association. Right. And in the book, you also note, and I think this is really helpful. You know, the unconscious likes, you know, sort of like dad jokes. It's very punny. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dreams are yeah built on puns. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the number one thing to look for in, in, in any dream. You know, what's, is this a, is this a pun for something? And when you translate dream images into words, that's what's uncanny is that those puns, you know, somehow the dream, the dreaming brain is turning uh, a set, it's turning an, an experience into a sentence. And then that set, and then it's, it's, it's creating an image based on that sentence that, that uses some other meaning of that <laughs> sentence, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it's operating, and I don't really go into this in the book, but this is something that psychoanalysts have, have examined is the, is the weird way that, that imagery and language are connected in, uh, in the psyche. And uh, it's fascinating, and, mm. but it's very important. You know, it's again, it's another reason why it's so important to write your dreams down because the images have a linguistic meaning quite often um and it's yeah it'll you'll start to notice all kinds of examples of it um when you start doing this work we're talking about freud uh let's uh, maybe say a little bit more about freud and i also want to ask you about synchronicity uh mm -hmm. jung's concept of synchronicity because you have a bit of a different take on that you want me to talk about freud first or sure uh whatever feels well, yeah freud freud is super important for all of this um, because he was really his book the interpretation of dreams which was what really put him on the map as a you know as a major thinker of the 20th century in fact he wrote it it actually came out in 1899 but he wanted the publisher to put 1900 on it because mm -hmm. he wanted it to be part of the new century you know right um and it was a really paradigm shifting book um, for culture, for the sciences, for the humanities. Ultimately, the sciences booted him out, mm. you know, because, you know, there's nothing testable really about any kind of psychoanalytic claim. Um, and, you know, to be honest, a lot of his suppositions don't, didn't hold water, you know, um, you know, he was kind of forced, as any great thinker does, <laughs> they force fit a lot of data into a, into a, a model that, and there's a, but there's still a lot of validity to that model, even if, even if it doesn't quite work the way they think it does, or even if there are a lot of loose ends. Um, and, you know, he really sort of mapped out a lot of the ways that the unconscious works and that the ways the, the, uh, for instance, the ways that the, 
the brain, you know, he was, he was a materialist. The brain will take an experience and transform it symbolically. And his, his, that, his understanding of that symbolic transformation remains very powerful, very powerful. I mean, it's, it's one of the most powerful, uh, I think, interpretive tools. You, you know, you can't, you know, you can't do any kind of literary criticism or any kind of uh, interpretive thing without, you know, really working with a lot of the tools that Freud really developed and, and advanced. Um, so he's super important culturally and uh, especially in the humanities. Um, he's also important because he was sort of straddling these two worlds of the, of the sciences. He thought of himself as a scientist. He was really especially in his early writings, he was really trying to link this to the sort of emergent understanding of how neurons work and how the brain was then understood to work. I mean, he really thought that his ideas would ultimately uh, mesh with, uh, with neuroscience. And he was right uh, because, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, neuroscientists have, have, uh, really come around to to embracing a lot of what Freud was saying, but again, they do it with their own terms. You know, they don't call it the unconscious, and they don't, you know, they they put their own terms on it. But but you know, anytime you're reading about priming studies or or any kind of you know implicit processing is often called in the brain. You know, Freud was the pioneer in thinking about that, and and uh, so a lot of neuroscience has really come back. To sort of validating a lot of the things that a lot of his larger claims you know i think a lot of people hear freud and they think well what do you mean like penis envy and all that <laughs> yeah, yeah. stuff no i'm talking about the meta psychology i'm talking mm -hmm. about the larger idea of these sort of components uh, of the psyche this sort of conscious layer and a large unconscious layer um and how they interact that's that's the importance of freud and of course then he you know one of his you know, his big protege for a few years was Carl Jung, you know, mm -hmm. Carl Jung's uh, approach, you know, owes a huge amount to his um, tutelage with Freud. Um, and they diverged, you know, mm -hmm. Jung started to, you know, detect that there was more going on in his patient's you know, dreams and symptoms and in his own dreams and symptoms, then this kind of uh, reductive, you know, sexual, you know, this kind of sex and violence that we kind of associate with the Freudian unconscious. Um, and Jung was detecting connections to myths and religion and so on. And so, and he was also, and Jung was also influenced by occultists of the time. Um, so he was drawing, I think the idea of archetypes and stuff actually came from Steiner, I believe. And, and, you know, there, the, you know, theosophy was a major, uh, influence at the time. And in fact, he was reading books by, that were put out by the theosophy publishing house. <laughs> um, a lot of his, uh, um, you know, his, his interest in world religions and mythology and stuff like that was, was facilitated by the, the theosophists of the, of the last century. Um, but anyway, yeah, he was detecting this kind of this, this more metaphysical, spiritual dimension. And, um, uh, and that has proven, you know, very popular for, uh, for, for people and, and, um, and has been, you know, super important in the new age. Um, 
My, and you asked about synchronicity, right? I mean, the, in the middle of the century, he published a couple of pieces um, uh, about meaningful coincidences. And, uh, and he was influenced by the kind of emerging or you know, what he understood or grasped of the emerging field of quantum physics. Um, and he thought somehow this is, this is gonna help explain meaningful coincidences. Uh, and he envisioned a kind of science of how things happen <laughs> that, that wasn't kind of this reductive billiard ball um, mechanistic unfolding of events in a thermodynamic universe that the physicists were describing, but, but, but it had some, something else going on. It was, it was governed by meaning. Now, I say in the new book that he was ahead of his time because he was ahead of his time in the sense that physics couldn't quite supply him with the terms, the concepts that he really needed. Um, and so what he wound up doing in those books was saying, well, what we have to do is just get rid of the time dimension. That's the problem. We just have to collapse mm -hmm. everything and say everything's happening simultaneously. Well, it's, it's not so simple, I believe. And what, what physics has subsequently done is started to reveal um, the possibility of, of retro causation. That is to say, causality operating in reverse, in temporal reverse. And this has been, uh, it's been sort of there on the margins of quantum physics for a long time, but more and more researchers are saying, wait, this might be a new answer to a lot of quantum mysteries. Um, and it's, uh, it's now being taken very seriously. It's not, it's not a mainstream interpretation, but it's growing in, in, uh, in importance. Um, and you'll sometimes see it written about as part of a, a larger rubric called super determinism. Okay. Which also all of it harkens back to that block universe model that we talked about earlier, the, the, you know, 4d space time fits well with this idea of, of retro causation. Um, and, and determine causes happening in reverse as well as forward. Now, the picture that's seeming to be emerging is that there are really two regimes of causation, okay? There's the, the thermodynamic billiard ball sequence kind of thing that gives us the world of material, you know, object interacting and planets orbiting and, you know, all that can really be well explained in that, that traditional thermodynamic model. But there's this other regime of causation that's that on the smallest scales, the quantum scale, cause, causal sequence is indeterminate, okay? Uh, it can go both ways. And com quantum computing now is showing this again and again and again. I mean, just read any article about quantum computing in the last you know few years. It like, seems like every month, some new team is saying, yeah, we can reverse the sequence of, of a calculation in a quantum computer. And it, you know, it seems to suggest that time, you know, it doesn't work the way we, we think it does. Well, what's what a quantum computer does is scale up those those spooky quantum effects, you know, that happen on the smallest scales. And guess what organ in the body is thought by many people to be a quantum computer? Okay. Um, so I think we're converging on a really interesting picture of of beings and not just human beings. I mean, living systems are also thought to be quantum computers. So this is operating even on a cellular level, I think even with, with animals and, and, and organisms too. But you have you know, this kind of brute material 
you know, interactions that there are just purely thermodynamic with a single arrow of time pointing in towards the future. But you then have organisms and nervous systems that are taking information from the future and, and using that information and binding time in this four-dimensional way. And it produces these effects in our lives that Carl Jung labeled synchronicity. Um, he, he wasn't able to, to advance this notion beyond just being a label, you know, or a principle, he sometimes called it, but he, he, he couldn't, you know, there was no, you know, he said, well, there's just no causation at all. Well, in fact, when you, when you zoom in on a synchronicity or a synchronistic experience, there is causation involved. And in fact, they don't, these experiences don't fall together in time, as he said, they involve, they involve very specific ways in which information seems to be reflexing from the future to the past in a, in a human agent uh, who is then creating a situation in their life that they have dreamed about or, or thought about or imagined beforehand. And it, it, it really, uh, it, it, it's a way of, I sometimes, I thought of calling my new book, The Anatomy of Synchronicity, <laughs> because what emerges from this viewpoint is like, it's like you're shining an X-ray on something that had previously been opaque and you suddenly see this inner structure and you can not only see the structure, you can start to work with that structure and make, and like amplify these experiences in your life. You can start to have more synchronicities, mm. you know, uh, by, by applying uh, this mentality and paying attention to your own thoughts in your own life in a new way. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's powerful to, to, to see it that way rather than just saying, well, we just need to get rid of causation or, or collapse the time dimension, because I don't think that's very, it's very helpful. So that's my, you know, I have sort of a, you know, love hate relationship with Jung. <laughs> I was, I was very, very much a Jungian for many years. And then, uh, you know, it, my, my research on, on this topic kind of um, drove a wedge, I think there, because I think that the synchronicity concept for a lot of people, it just acts as a stopgap. They go, well, yeah. that was a synchronistic, you know, thing. That's just uh, the universe giving me the thumbs up or whatever. Right. But when you, when you say, no, there's really, there's really something more going on here. And it's about you. It's about your brain. And it's about right. your life. Uh, it's not just archetypes. They're right. like somehow pulling strings in your life. It's, it's your messy convoluted uh, life. That's, that's, that's feeding back. And if you start to see how it's working, you can start to work with this and really uh, intensify uh, these kinds of experiences very powerfully. And that gets back to my love, I guess I won't say love, but my, I guess, ultimate preference for Freud, because Freud was really his, for him, the unconscious was a personal unconscious. Mm. Um, you know, he may have put too much emphasis on sex and violence and things like that, but, but it was not about archetypes. It was about, it was about you're sort of messy, you know, the mess of your life, you know, the, the kind of the unique, the, the, the irreducible um, things that make your life totally unique versus these kind of templates, these kind of templates that, that I think for a lot of people, you know, um, you know, archetypes are kind of these templates that they can fit their experience into. But ultimately, I don't think there's a template for life. And, um, and that's why I guess I prefer Freud. You see, actually, ultimately, he's often seen as reductive, but I think he's less reductive than, than Jung in a lot of ways. He's, he's, um, he's 
just making you pay attention the same way that that you know a zen teacher might make you pay attention to your you know to your actual thoughts and your actual experiences and and how every experience is unique and irreducible you can't reduce it to an archetype and when you have that mentality about your life um to really focus on your biography you know that's what the value of freud was he got people to pay attention to people's lives in this new detailed way you know like really delving into people's lives and that's what i think is really that's what precognitive dream work leads to is this this enhanced sense of of your life uh as this unique you know fabulous formation in the blog universe that yeah. is like you can spend your life exploring if you want you know uh it's uh yeah so that's i guess that's part of where i i always kind of come back to freud but that is not to say that freud was perfect or right. or, or right. even a, a you know a, a likable person <laughs> yeah well i think it's an important point about the uh you and the a causality of synchronicity and you, you do discuss causation, and maybe this is uh, going back to where we started, in a sense, with the rejection from science, because you're actually arguing for this sort of retro-causation, a, um, a kind of a teleological model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where things get kind of loopy, mm -hmm. uh, because you suggest that our present thoughts and experiences can shape our past. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, does this mean, does this imply that I can change my past? No, it doesn't because there's a really, this is a, a crucial distinction. Um, I'm writing something about this now that people think that influencing the past or causing the past means changing it from hmm. what it was. No, you, you are causing the past means that you now are part of the backstory of your past. Okay. And, and that's mind blowing to think about, mm -hmm. but uh, you are part of the, of the causation that led to you being you right now. It's a, it, it, it is a, a looping relationship. Uh, it's very science fictional and, uh, and it goes against, you know, <laughs> it goes against how we, we are comfortable thinking about our lives, but um, it's, yeah, the, yes, this is the implication because if you are, you know, the point is if you, if you um, have an experience, um, okay, you know, I, I have to say, I wake up with a dream about planes crashing into buildings and then tomorrow, you know, I see that on the news. Um, okay, we just think of that, well, that was a precognitive dream. But what that implies is that my thoughts today, having a conversation with you, influenced my dreams last night or maybe a year ago you know maybe if you know there's some mind amazing revelation awaiting me in my inbox later after my interview and you know uh you know i, I learned something amazing that i didn't know uh, from an old friend or whatever mm -hmm. you know i might have had a dream about that a year ago now most people who don't like pay attention to their dreams maybe that that dream didn't have much of an effect on them but if you have a lifetime of of recording your dreams paying attention to your dreams and then maybe acting on the basis of your dreams taking you know honoring your dreams in some way like you know just making art based on your dreams uh or or whatever i've started keeping souvenirs you know i i, I incorporate them into into sort of an ongoing art project um 
uh, you know, or, or yeah, I mean, I have a lot of little ways of honoring dreams that I have. Well, you know what? You are starting to building those habits. You are building the habit of retro causing yourself in visible ways. You know, I can now trace in my dream journals ways in which my thoughts on a certain day actually influenced a course of action in my past and, you know, deflected me. You know, there's a, a model in physics for retrocausation of, you know, shooting a, a, a billiard ball through a wormhole into the past uh, at its younger self and deflecting it. And, and turns out all the math works out that, that when you do that, you, def, you actually deflect the billiard ball into the wormhole. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it creates that, that looping relationship. Well, that's what's, that's what you're doing. You are creating your past. Um, and you're constantly doing this. We're just not aware of it. And so I, I think that there's like, the, there's like a fascinating psychology or philosophy or whatever in the future awaiting someone to write about, you know, it's, it's going to be a totally revolutionary new way of, of looking at the human being to realize that we're, we are constantly, you know, causing our past, we're affecting ourselves. And the more we're conscious and we amplify that, the more we're conscious of our dreams and synchronicities and synchronicities and uh, waking, you know, inspirations, you know, any, any manifestation of what Freud called the unconscious is really, I believe, a manifestation of precognition or this, this sort of forward in time thoughts, feelings, and so on, uh, refluxing and influencing us. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I'm, the term I use in the new book is the long self, you know, to, to describe kind of this, 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 this unfolding biography, this landscape that's still ahead of all of us, that's, influencing us right now in ways that we don't know yet but when we get there if we're paying attention we can map out these these amazing wormholes in our lives um uh and study this and it's yeah it's 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 truly uh mind-blowing when you start doing it yeah it reminds me when i cover uh, aristotle and a little bit of thomas aquinas in my classes and the idea of the prime mover, you know, and I think many people think that the prime mover, you know, which gets you know, with Aquinas gets equated with God is that's the beginning of everything. It's mm -hmm. like this push. And I always say, no, it's not a push, but it's like a pull, a pull yeah. and it's pulling you towards it. And it seems yeah. to me, that's kind of what you're arguing this long yeah. self that we're pulling ourselves towards our future. Right. right. And I, what's fascinating is and what I love, uh, I'm sort of delving into more now is how this translates. You know, the same. If this is operative on human life, I mean, our lives can be kind of a model of what may be happening in, in the cosmos, right? And mm -hmm. uh, you, there's a lot of writers who've, who've talked about uh, not a prime mover, but you know, the the omega point. You know, for Teilhard mm -hmm. de Chardin, or yeah. um, you know, Philip K. Dick was writing about this. The idea mm -hmm. that that uh, that the real you know, causative force in the universe is not back at the beginning of time. It's at the end of time. Right. And it's, and it's, uh, and through a, you know, time travel and, yeah. and whatever other things await us, you know, the future is causing the present. Uh, you know, John Wheeler, the physicist had, had this, he came to this kind of 
um, realization um, mid late in his career. Um, he, his model was the way that an observer can uh, affect um, a, you know, the, the, by choosing to, to measure this versus that in a, in a, in a physics experiment, you know, you're exerting a kind of influence, kind of influence on that. Well, the fact that that's retrocausal isn't immediately apparent until you realize, well, the speed of light makes that retrocausal. And so he was, you know, he even envisioned an experiment where, uh, you know, where we could, where you could affect something in the past, you know, by measuring something at a distance. So, you know, he, someone got the idea of bouncing a laser off of mirrors on the moon and, and, and testing this over a span of like two seconds or whatever. And, you know, sure enough. And, you know, he was imagining, Wheeler was imagining, you know, we could, that, you know, theoretically, then observers at the end of the universe, looking back at the Big Bang are, are affecting it. Well, he didn't even have a model of retro causation as I'm describing it. I mean, that this is even kind of subsequent to, to Wheeler. Um, but I think that, that we, or I'm sorry, not we, but the intelligences at the end of the universe or whatever uh, are going to have a direct effect on, on the whole, all of cosmic history in a kind of retrocausal way. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's fascinating to think about. And yeah, it's a teleological model, but it doesn't imply God, <laughs> you know, right. necessarily. Uh, and yeah, and that, and that's actually interesting. They're, they're the reason the Enlightenment was is so has been so opposed to anything smacking of teleology for so long is that back in you know Isaac Newton's time teleology meant God it meant a miracle right. you know no one could think about teleology that wasn't somehow God's purpose and intention and so it was very natural for them to say no we can't it's not fair it's not playing fair to invoke miracles so we can invoke teleology so it's been there's this been it's been forbidden since then to talk about backwards causation uh, because of that that uh but we're now in a new world where we can think about backwards causation without thinking about miracles you know um but it doesn't mean that there isn't an intention or intelligence uh, behind uh causes from the future influencing the past and we certainly see that in our own lives i mean <laughs> honestly I'm, I'm a more intelligent person now than i was five years ago or 50 years ago <laughs> 40, well, I'm 49 years ago you know um uh and so yeah, there is this notion of, of increased intelligence, you know, acting backwards, whether on the scope of an individual life or on the scope of a species or, or the cosmic history or whatever. Yeah. I always liked um, Terrence McKenna's phrase, the transcendental object at the end of time, mm, Yeah, uh, because he had, he offered a very similar model, right. I think. Yeah. Uh, so, and this is a huge question uh, with all of this. What does this imply about free will? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone asks that. Yeah. <laughs> I have a different answer every time. Um, you know, I ask people to drill down, you know, what do they mean by free will? You know, what do you mean by free will? So tell me, what do you mean by free will? I mean by free will that I have the capacity to choose and that um, it's, I see it as being, non-deterministic in a sense. Um, and philosophically, I'll just tell you that my approach to free will, uh, because I have to cover this with the students, is that 
I don't know. The, all the evidence seems to me to suggest that we do live in a determined universe, which would imply, I think, that we don't have free will. But I also add that I still have to act under the illusion that I have it. (laughs) Well, you know, free will, that, that freedom to choose. Well, yes. I mean, we all, we have the freedom to choose with, to the extent that we actually have that freedom. Like I, I raise my hand. I, I, I choose to do this right now. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if you took apart my, brain and my nervous system and my soul <laughs> and looked at the and, and looked at all the the chains of events that led to that um you know that description would not look very much like i was free it would look like i was determined but my experience is very much that i'm freely choosing and i'm and i experience it um that way one of the things that you'd find if you really drilled down into all those chains of causation to my raising my hand is that there is an, an open indeterminate element to it. At the quantum level, you cannot predict exactly where a given particle is going to, to land. Okay. And that's always, and with under the so-called Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, that's always been said as just intrinsic in reality that essentially God plays dice and this really bugged mm-hmm. Einstein. Well, what the retrocausal interpretation says is no, there actually isn't any randomness, but those causes, those that that indeterminate element in a particle's behavior is actually coming from its future. It's influenced by the next thing that particle hits is determining its history. Mm. And that's the fascinating thing that that okay, you can maybe you can't determine how I ra- you know raise my hand, but maybe it's my future. Maybe I'm pulling my meat puppet strings from a point you know, farther along my timeline. I, I talk about this in time loops a bit. Um, and I, I think that's like, well, okay, I, I'm not free will, no free will. I don't think you can't, you know, these are, I think these are semantic problems, <laughs> you know, um, it doesn't change my experience, but it changes the way I look at my experience. And it's like a pretty exciting new way of looking at, at your experience. So I'm not, I'm not really bothered by the free will question. Another way I, I often answer this question, I'll just say quickly, is that um, I'm I'm a my tradition, if you want to say, is Zen. I'm I'm a, a Zen meditator for many years, and um, I've you know when I meditate, sometimes if I have sort of in sort of thoughts intruding or whatever, I'll just I'll just set them on a mental little shelf over here on the upper right portion of my visual field i'll just kind of say i'll just set it on a shelf it's like i'm not getting rid of it i'm not destroying it or denying it i'm just saying let's set it on the shelf i'll take it down when i'm done but i just don't want it you know bothering me right now and that's what i ask people to do with free will just kind of set this idea up on a shelf Hmm. and and just experience life without this idea of free will and see what happens see what see how it changes you to think to, to not have this idea of free will lurking there as a problem. And um, I've found that, you know, I'm much happier and healthier without the notion of free yeah. will. It's a, it's baggage, right. you know, it's sort of philosophical baggage. It's not doing me any good. You know, Zen Zenists, uh, I don't think are very into free will. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. feels like it's about being spontaneous and all that, but it's, mm-hmm. it's also about getting rid of that baggage about 
uh, about whether we have free will or not, just acting, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the less you're burdened by these pieces of baggage, the more your actions are effective and the more you're happy and more like, wow, you, you feel like you're in charge of your life in a way when you don't have that idea of free will there. Um, it's paradoxical, you know, but yeah. um, so uh, I, I just ask people, you know, sit, just take your idea of free will, sit on a shelf. I'm not saying get rid of it, but uh, you might find, as I've found, that that uh, life look, starts actually weirdly looking a little better without this problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had to ask because I do have a background in philosophy, but uh, in all honesty, my relationship to philosophy, I think is a little bit like your relationship to Jung. I have a love hate relationship with it. Um, and usually I'm way happier just letting the mystery be, (laughs) you know? Um, and you know, there are a lot of philosophical questions that I could ask you, not just about free will, but about consciousness. Um, and, uh, I know in the book, you seem to kind of suggest, yeah, I'm not so interested in that question. Um, and, uh, that your focus is on the unconscious and, uh, this question of time itself and our experience of time. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. so rich, but I like the idea that the focus is on the experience, you know, the human experience of these things and working with the experience of these things. I know that we're uh, starting to uh, run out of time here. Uh, So I just have a couple more questions for you. Uh, The first one is what's next? What's next for you? Yeah, I'm right now, well, this is for for several years, I've been sort of amassing kind of research for a book on precognition and creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, because, you know, I think that, you know, dreams are kind of the royal road to precognition in a way, but in another way, I think art mm-hmm. is the is a royal road in the sense that you know artworks, unlike dreams, I mean they're already public documents and public, mm-hmm. you know, where we have them, we can examine them. And in the case of famous writers and famous artists, we have a you know we have a life that we can compare it to, and we can start yeah. to examine the way precognition might work uh, in that sphere. And so. Yeah, very slowly, I'm I'm working on a book uh, where I'm looking at precognition in uh, the lives and the and the and the work of of artists, some famous mm-hmm. artists that you wouldn't think of. And the Time Loops has a couple chapters uh, on like there's a I delve deeply into Philip K. Dick, who is famously precognitive, uh, and also Morgan Robertson, who's the writer of the of the novel um, Futility that predicted the Titanic disaster very uncannily. Yeah. Um, but the new, new book will really it will be all chapters uh, like that, but all on a wide range of mm. of artists that are not thought of right. as precognitive. I mean, you know, Tolkien, Kafka. Mm. Um, uh, you know, things like that. So, uh, David Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I'm excited about it, but it's, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading and a lot yeah. of research and I'm, I'm going very slowly on it, but that's my next. Yeah. yeah. Project. Well, yeah. um, I, I see a lot of, uh, people identifying similar things from the Simpsons, 
where they're oh, like, yeah. yep, the Simpsons yeah. predicted it. Sure. Um, but with David Lynch, that was, I, I know you mentioned Lynch in the book and um, I consider Lynch one of the gods that walk amongst us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking in terms of Twin Peaks quite a bit when reading your book and um, being stuck in the lodge, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. probably the best example I've ever yeah. seen of being in a time loop, you right. know, and uh, you know, I'll see you again in 25 years. <laughs> right. Well, honestly, I, I think that, I mean, I think Lynch is, is fascinating for so many reasons. And yeah. of course he famously is a, is a meditator, you know, he, right. he does transcendental meditation. Uh, and, but I've, I've found that when I'm, you know, I don't have time for meditation really much anymore, but, but I, when I do am in sort of a practice, you know, and I'm meditating continuously, life takes on an aura that feels very much like Twin Peaks. And it's, it's like this weird mixture of, of comedy and threat kind of like behind everything. And, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like my whole life is like, I'm living in uh, this kind of Twin Peaks environment where there's, you know, so much going on that's funny and, and strange and and all that and it just feels it feels like that world and it's like i he's so tapped in to mm-hmm. uh to that reality and that's yeah. why he's so you know yeah i mean he i agree with you he's you know uh, yeah. one of the the greats probably the greatest artist of our time yeah uh, i would venture to suggest and but he's also a mystic and he's a mm-hmm. and he's yeah. he's really tapped into something he is and uh, uh I'll, I'll just say this uh i don't want to open up any doors here but um in the uh, the latest uh, twin peaks the return that mm-hmm. uh, famous episode eight mm-hmm. um yeah. a friend and i just kind of keep going back to that as this model of kind of where we are now yeah. we sort of see especially with that woodsman towards the yeah. end you know who goes into the radio station right. and Uh, he's like just chanting and we're interpreting this as like the archons and that there's this dark spell that has fallen, you know, over the world. Um, And so symbolically it's, uh, you know, yeah, he's, he's tapped in. (laughs) He's tapped in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So um, uh, the final, uh, two final questions. One is um, how's your uh, 2029 Tesla holding up? (laughs) it's uh it's 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 great it needs uh it needs servicing i need to, to take it to the service center but i it's like there's, the service center for it doesn't exist yet so yeah, i have okay, to yeah. um yeah it needs a new lubricant they're gonna invent yeah. like in in you know uh 2025 and it doesn't exist yeah. and i have to like wait to get an oil change for it uh, okay yeah well you know i had to ask i had to ask <laughs> Uh, so, uh, where is the best place for people to find out about you and your work? I know that you have a couple places I think that people can go. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have a, a website or a, a blog called the nightshirt.com. Um, and I, I have, I've been so busy uh, with kids and day job and everything the past year that I haven't really posted much on it lately, but I do try to post my podcast and webcast interviews on there. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter um, uh, at the night shirt. Again, all one word uh, is my Twitter handle. Uh, and yeah, in my books, uh, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self is the new one. And that's available in bookstores as well as uh, online. And uh, my first book, Time Loops. Um, I don't know how many bookstores it's in, but it's it's you can definitely get it 
yeah. uh, at your favorite internet bookseller, whatever yeah. that may be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'll put a uh, link to the website and your books. Uh, usually I uh, provide links to bookshop.org because Jeff Bezos does not to be, uh, does not need to be any richer than what he is. Right. Um, uh, but I'll put those in the show notes and uh, the video description on YouTube. Um, so um, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, I'm a fan of your work now uh, and I'm going to be getting time loops. I need to read that next. Uh, and I look forward to your uh, next work too. So thank, you, thank you so much. All right. Thank, thank you. you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 16 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. If you would like to support my work in creating free and credible material on YouTube, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.